You are listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. Hello and welcome to Dirt Work. This is your host, Adam Morrissey. Today, we're going to continue our conversation on equitable cities. And for that, we're joined by Maggie Parker, who is a member of the Dallas Business Journal's 2019 40, 40, 40 Under 40 class and the founder of Innovon Neighborhoods, an organization which is led by community-identified priorities to develop residential, mixed-use, and historically significant projects. Working with local stakeholders, they cultivate partnerships to solve for the needs of people and neighborhoods that desire to transition towards socioeconomic viability. Ultimately, Innovon puts people at the center of real estate development. Hey Maggie, how's it going? Going pretty well, how about you? Going well. Hey, I, I, I saw you also were the recipient of the Juanita Craft Humanitarian Award as part of the, I guess, revisioned uh, Texas State Fair. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited to uh, be in the name of Juanita Craft. So. Very good. Well, I guess to kick it off, Maggie, could you talk a little bit about community-oriented development and how your path professionally led you to this position in your career and um, this point in the marketplace? Yeah, so um, for me, community-oriented development is really, you know, uh, putting people at the center of real estate, right, which is kind of like my tagline for my business. And um, But what that looks like is working with community stakeholders, groups that, uh, whether that's individuals or organizations that are already um, making a change in their neighborhood and working alongside them in order to um, move their real estate projects forward. And so my background um, is really, well, let's say my trajectory has been uh, originally in public administration and city and regional planning. Um, And so I've, for for that time, I've really had a focus on how do I implement projects um, and really said, okay, let's follow the money. And so that led me into real estate finance. Um, And so for me, it brings this lens of real estate as it just really being a tool, right? Like how do we change neighborhoods? How do we um, have long-term implications for Uh, how neighborhoods and communities can change and real estate is a tool to do that Um, and so for me that that really is where I see the combination of community oriented you know work and real estate development sure what what factors you know that have impact cities and neighborhoods have made community oriented development a, a relevant component for the future of our cities yeah so I mean every city has a distressed neighborhood right so um, there's neighborhoods and cities are always in transition. That's just the nature of how cities have worked. And so when we think about what the future of um, our neighborhoods look like, you want to value the people who have been living there, who have weathered the storm of the ups and downs of, of a community. And so um, including their voice, uh, and how you de- uh, develop alongside and in tandem with them is pretty key. But also when we look at the long-term trajectory of communities, um, you need people there that are going to kind of, you know, look after the block, have a vision for what happens um, in that neighborhood. And so being uh, intentional about having a community-based focus um, 
is, is super important to the future and longevity of cities. Yeah. So when I hear you talking about, you know, we're trying to enact change in these neighborhoods, um, my understanding is a little bit different than gentrification, which is a word that people seem to have mixed feelings about. Could you talk a little bit about how community-oriented development is different than gentrification? Yeah, so uh, it's really hard to actually pit those two words against each other. Uh, gentrification and someone's view of it actually varies by their vantage point. How they, what, whether they own property in that neighborhood or whether they're the developer whether they are having to move out or whether they can stay there. Um, and technically you could have a community oriented project where somebody who has lived in that neighborhood um, now has to leave as a result of new development. So, you know, that makes it a little bit convoluted. I think as we think about gentrification, um, you know, I've heard some folks use this term gentlefication. So basically, how do you not have as much of a, a negative impact on certain um, neighbors? Uh, a lot of that, those strategies come through um, policy, um, policy alignment with local government. Um, so you can think about um, opportunities for tax abatements on property taxes. You can think about um, community ownership, right, where um, people either own homes or commercial properties. And so there are ways to look at minimizing um, the potential effects of gentrification and specifically from a real estate perspective and still having community oriented, um, you know, development. Sure. Are, are there certain cities that are more on the leading edge in regards to community oriented development? And, and if so, what are they doing? doing well to deliver successful projects and transform communities? So I think the um, examples that you'll always hear about are Detroit, um, and then more recently, uh, DC, specifically around the 11th Street Bridge Park project, um, as they have a equitable development plan that uh, outlines that project. And so when we look at Detroit, you know, um, several years ago, Obviously, they're in bankruptcy, a lot of population decline, a lot of uh, key firms have left the area. And so Detroit has been a place where there was essentially a blank slate, right? Like they're having an opportunity to reimagine their community because there's been so much distress. You also have a very large corporate um influencer that owns a, a large portion of downtown that is willing to kind of um, think about their city from a, a long, uh, you know, 20, 30 year perspective. Um, and so what that means for kind of um, the opportunity to transform cities is that um, you're able to build in and bring in new ideas because um, people have, they see the need for new ideas. What happens in a lot of areas is, um, you know, people want to bring in new ideas, but maybe politics or funding or, you know, the powers that be aren't necessarily in alignment with um, what some of those community-based projects are. Um, and so when you have folks that are just saying, hey, we're willing to try whatever it takes to change our neighborhoods, then that's, I think, where you start to get some really innovative traction and a lot of collaboration. 
And so when we think about those opportunities in other markets that may not have, you know, uh, the quote unquote blank slate that Detroit had, you're really looking for opportunities for collaboration across different uh, disciplines. So whether that's the business community, local government, nonprofits, um, et cetera. And you're really, you know, also trying to have a 20 to 30 year vision for what your neighborhood looks like. Um, because the things that we all want to change and the impact we want to have uh, is, is long-term. It's a long-term goal. Yeah, you talk about collaboration across multiple disciplines. How do you go about building that coalition and seeking input from the most relevant parties and making sure you're engaging the community as well? Because I'd imagine, to a certain extent, some of these people's goals might be a little different so curious how you work through that from a process standpoint. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Uh, and we'll have different goals. I think um, a lot of times this work gets done via a catalyst leader, right? And that can be an individual organization um, that can shape that vision for people to get behind. Um, and so some of that, it also requires that people are willing to kind of learn from each other right everyone's perspective of what it takes to make you know just say a general real estate deal happen is so different um let's take the example of um looking at working with local governments and developers right so local governments are you know I, especially because my uh, past planning background we're like okay this is the city's property and through zoning, we're telling you what you can build. And developers are saying, you know, uh, we own this property and we're putting up the money to, to build something, right? And so everyone at the end of the day has the same goal, but their viewpoint of what it takes to get there and even their role in getting there is so different. So it requires, whether it's in development, whether it's, you know, doing some large-scale community visioning process and trying to create some sort of systems change, somebody has to lead the pack to say, hey, this is what everybody, these are everyone's interests, um, and we all have a different viewpoint of how to get there, but let's figure out how to get there. Yeah. So when I think about it, I'd imagine um, government and urban planning entities have some sort of motive from tax generation, private developers motivated by profits. What do you hear most from communities that you serve or have worked with in regards to their goals for some of these developments? Yeah, I mean, um, so I work in a lot of um, lower income or distressed neighborhoods and most of these, the residents and key stakeholders want the same thing that everyone else wants. They want a safe neighborhood. They want quality housing. They want jobs. They want to be able to get to, um, you know, healthy food options and grocery stores. So it's the same thing that everybody else wants. It's the issue is that does their neighborhood or the perception of their neighborhood meet the metrics that are needed to for for tip that are typically needed, excuse me, to justify um, a development pro process. And so um kind of hearing ver various groups' concerns over the years. People are people, right? We want the same thing. We want to care for ourselves and our families. And, um, you know, there's just 
different paths uh, based on background or neighborhood that someone lives in, et cetera. Yeah, you alluded to uh, some things we talked about in last month's episode with Texas State Representative Carl Sherman. We, we were talking about the impact of policy on the development of cities and ripple effects that some of these policies have on communities such as quality of life for food deserts or transportation jobs, healthcare. How does community-based development aim to address some of these symptoms that have historically impacted underserved communities? Yeah, so um, the reason I decided to really dive into real estate development is I felt like it was at the center of all of the kind of systematic issues that people have concerns with. So, for example, if you live in a quality house um, in a neighborhood that, um, you know, has access to schools, well, that's education. If you live in a neighborhood that um, is not next to a lead smelter, you know, that impacts your physical health. Um, You know, if you live in a neighborhood that is adjacent to a bus stop or a dart station, that a lot more, um, you know, opportunities to access jobs or access other community amenities, right? So where someone lives has a rippling effect for a lot of the systematic concerns, um, you know, that policy also has implications for. And so for me, um, you know, really addressing real estate development from a community perspective allows you to kind of have an impact on these um, large-scale systematic issues. Yeah, I think Richard Rothstein's Color of Law does a a very nice job, which is kind of help form the thesis for this mini-series. Yeah. Hey, are, are there cities that are having some pretty innovative solutions for food deserts, transportation, jobs, and healthcare um, using community-based development? Uh, I think a good example is kind of bringing back up uh, in D.C. with the 11th Street Bridge Park, uh, which is uh, really a catalyst project for the neighborhood. But before they wanted to do that kind of um, that that project. They decided to put together an equitable development plan. Um, And through this plan, they had uh, several areas that they wanted to address, uh, real estate, job creation, um, you know, the arts, education, et cetera. Um, In my kind of previous world of being in the CDFI space, things that really have piqued my interest in that work were um, their opportunity to build a community land trust, um, but also to do a lot of training uh, for existing businesses and um, the growing workforce to help them be able to um, get jobs or have business opportunities with the construction of the park. Sure. So there have been intentional, um, you know, uh, an intentional thought process, let me say, of as we build this catalyst project or or as we think about the economic impact of this catalyst project, How does it impact the neighborhood? And so let's look at a a, a community land trust for community ownership. And then how do we bring in businesses or how do we train, um, you know, individuals that live around the park to actually, you know, have money in their pocket from development of the park? And so I think for me, that ripples into, you know, other projects of 
again, long-term ownership, how are we thinking about um, how existing stakeholders, you know, remain and have an influence in those neighborhoods? But secondly, you know, when we say, you know, the city's going to build these roads or we're going to support these businesses, right? How are we looking to the internal resources to, um, you know, just provide additional economic impact uh, in that existing community? Sure. In these projects where communities are more engaged than maybe completely private developments, are there opportunities for youth to be engaged in the development? I, I was thinking about, you know, maybe mentorship opportunities for uh, kids aspiring to be architects, engineers, trades, stuff like that. I, I've done a little bit of work with the Building Industry Leaders Program through Urban Land Institute. And I know that's one of the things that they're always talking about is trying to get the real world uh, experience. So I was curious on that. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to mention that program. Um, Dallas also has the City Lab School, yeah. which is um, a high school that focuses on um, you know architectural and other like development um, uh, professions right at a high school level, and so it allows students to kind of do different internships, et cetera. Uh, I've also seen where you know they will have students. Um, you know, kind of lead out some of the public art projects, right? And Very that cool. helps with uh, doing some different uh, after school programs or helping them, you know, just leave a legacy for the neighborhood that they live in. And so uh, I definitely agree, like including youth early on and having different opportunities to mentor or apprenticeship, apprenticeships, et cetera, uh, is super important. How important is a particular community's unique story and identity in transforming a community or neighborhood? Oh, it's, it's the bedrock of it, right? Like every neighborhood has their own, um, just like trajectory that they've been through. So let's take, for example, there's a neighborhood in Dallas called the 10th Street Historic District. Um, it is a freedman's town. Um, so which means that it is one of the few places that freed slaves or African-Americans Um, could live uh, in the Dallas area. And so because now there is a historic district, um, we, you know, there's a a concerted effort essentially to keep the uh, historical character of the homes in that neighborhood. Well, as we think about the future of that community, you know, um, sometimes it financially makes sense or does not make sense, right, to keep those types of homes. But as we think about, and that's, I mean, that's a a longer political question, but uh, as we think about the trajectory of the community, acknowledging the history um, of that neighborhood and the opportunities that it had for, um, you know, freed, um, for freedmen, essentially, uh, that plays a huge part into how people think about developing the neighborhood now and into the future. Sure. Yeah, I was reading um, earlier this year a book called The Second Mountain, which was by New York Times columnist David Brooks. And one of the things he spoke about a lot is community and gave um, an example from a Harvard economist um, that did a study studying Watts and Compton, which are demographically very similar and only two or three miles apart. And what they found was in Watts, 44% of black men who grew up in Watts were incarcerated 
as of a, a certain date. It was about 10 years ago as compared to um, 6.2 percent with grew up in with similar incomes in central Compton. And one of the reasons he stated for the the economist for the divide in was that in Compton, there was a more sense of identity and community. So that was just huge. Um, you know, when you, it, it's kind of seems like a, one of those Malcolm Gladwell tipping point exercises, but you know, the idea that the neighborhood is the unit of change and, um, people in the community need to be involved in that change and the power that that has. You know, we talk about a lot, um, in this conversation, Maggie, about, uh, divisions of responsibilities through a variety of parties that have different interests. How do you see the division of responsibilities being broken out between the private sector, nonprofits, or for good companies and government in bringing forth transformation and positive change in communities? Hmm. I mean, I would say everyone has their role, right? Um, sure. Local government is around policy as well as funding. Um, you know, you can look at nonprofits as far as uh, social services or, um, you know, some of them are doing a lot more community advocacy work. Um, then you have, you know, the private sector. Uh, some, I, I firmly believe that a lot more folks in the private sector have to kind of be willing to spend their time and or risk capital um, to help move some of these neighborhoods forward. So in my mind, I think everyone do what you do best, right? Like sure. um, everybody's role is different and they're there for a reason. I think that allow, also allows for checks and balances. The thing that I always stress is everyone needs to um, be open to different perspectives of how to get things done. Because um, what I often find is, especially those from the private sector, like, well, this issue of, you know, helping kids or building affordable housing is so easy. Why hasn't, hasn't it been fixed yet? Sure, sure. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, if you really knew <laughs> what the issues were, you wouldn't have made that statement, right? So, and I think a lot of times people underestimate, you know, what it takes to get different things done just because either a lack of knowledge or, you know, they're seeing something very linearly uh, when there's so many other complexions. So, no, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a local developer that said, and I think this, it seems to be something you're seeing more in the private sector and corporate environments, this idea of doing the right thing, mm -hmm. meaning like morally can also be the same thing as doing the right thing financially in the long term. Um, so it seems to be a trend I, I saw, um, J.P. Morgan Chase investing a fair amount of money into some of these funds. I'm pretty sure it was Chase. I'll fact check and include it in the in the uh, episode debrief. Um, but when like, when you think about a topic like affordable housing, which is uh, uh, like a very you know front and center topic, what are some of the inertia that maybe uh, general public doesn't see to solving an issue like that? A lot of folks don't understand the financing behind it, right? Like they think, well, why don't you just build a smaller house? Or sure. why don't you, you know, use cheaper um, 
cheaper construction uh, materials. Um, or people don't necessarily understand the politics of it, right? Like a lot of times when you get into the politics perspective, it's the community has one thing that they want to see, but because they don't understand the financial implications, they may want a house that costs $500,000 when the area may really warrant a $150,000 house. Sure. Then you come to another perspective and somebody will say, will say, well, all of our houses are worth $150,000. I don't want you to build anything in this area that costs more than that because now you'll be gentrifying me out of my neighborhood. And so how do you balance that, right? Like how do you now provide new affordable opportunities? Um, you know, you could, we could go down the list of NIMBYism, people not wanting, um, you know, workforce or affordable housing in their neighborhoods. Um, so then it starts to get concentrated in certain areas or people not seeing the connection to the fact that if your workforce can't live in the neighborhood that's surrounding the business that you offer, that has financial implications to your bottom line. People either won't come on time because they can't get transportation or they don't have a car to get there, or they can't afford to actually live in that community. So, you know, there's just all these implications um, that often have a rippling effect. And that's also because affordable housing has a ton of terminology. There's a lot of different ways you can um, start to address it. And so I, I often feel like people get lost in how, um, how to make an impact, which in some ways is understandable. Um, so it's, there's again, a, a kind of a catch 22 there of, you know, how much do you explain versus how much do you just keep on pushing and trying to do sure. good work? So yeah, absolutely. Complexity can't be a, uh, a reason not to still go go for it. Um, right. Yeah, on, on the topic of financing and affordable housing, I, I confirmed JP Morgan announced that they were going to do a $30 billion investment to bridge the racial wealth gap over the next five years, primarily focusing on affordable housing and boosting minority-owned small businesses. Uh, with your background in financing, could you speak a little bit to, I'd imagine there's some creative financing structures between communities, nonprofit groups, private sector, and government. H how do those structures come together for a project like this? It takes a lot of uh, time and creativity, right? So like, sure. I'll, I'm going to start to just rattle off different acronyms and th it'll this will tell you how complex it is. You can go okay. from yeah. low-income housing tax credits to new market tax credits to historic tax credits. You can look at municipal fin finance, whether that's um, MUDs, which is um, municipal utility di districts, to TIFs, tax increment financing, to um, using federal dollars, which is CDBG or HOME. Um, you can get into the social impact investing space. Um, you can look at CDFIs. I mean, so I can go on and on and on. The, the various tools for financing projects um, is a laundry list, right? And so what then happens is everyone has their niche or, you know, and so a lot of times those things don't cross or, um, but what typically will happen is somebody has a project and 
they find a niche developer that kind of knows all these different types of financing or they'll go to their local government and say, we want to do this deal. And if they have, you know, a strong balance sheet or they have the right kind of uh, community connections, like maybe they're a really strong nonprofit, folks will start to align with them to pull deals together. And so you just start layering you know, there, there are projects that will have five or six different sources of financing um, in order to do the deals. And each type of financing has its own restrictions or can only be used for certain types of um, parts, for certain portions of the construction process. I mean, it just starts to get complex. Um, but there's the more tools and uh, that are out there, the better, right? But again, it adds to the complexity of trying to find solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a project going on right now that either you're working on or that's going on in the community or in a development space that you're most excited about? Yeah, so um, one of my projects that's furthest along is um, it's in the bottom neighborhood. Uh, I'm working with the nonprofit called Golden Seeds, which is the CDC for um, Golden Gate Baptist Church, which has been in the neighborhood uh, 90 years this year. Um, and so with this project, we have uh, been approved to acquire uh, single family homes in the area. And we're doing um, affordable housing for families making 80% of AMI and below. Um, and so that essentially equates to houses that cost between one sixty-five and $185,000. Um, that's pretty huge because in the Dallas market, if you can find anything under two fifty, dollars let alone three hundred, dollars like you've pretty much hit a gold mine, right? So, um, you know, we're still in our early stages doing uh, a lot of the, you know, pre-development due diligence work that needs to get done. Um, there are a lot of dynamics for the properties. One of, one of them is um, there are a lot of 25 foot wide lots, 25 foot wide, 100 feet deep. So what that means is they're very slender um, and they, you know, were originally the homes that were on there were shotgun homes. So what that means is like you could take your gun and go through every single room of the house, right? Well, that's not the market that we have, you know, today, the type of homes that people are looking for. Um, and the zoning restrictions don't necessarily lend itself to a 25-foot wide lot, right? So um, we're getting creative, but it's it's really to have a long-term impact in the neighborhood. No, that's great. I look forward to keeping uh, up with that project. For, the, for listeners that might not be familiar with the Bottoms neighborhood, it's um, about two and a half miles southwest of downtown. A lot of the neighborhood has skyline views. And correct me if I'm wrong, Maggie, but I think it's it's right next to the School for the Talented and Gifted, which I think for some years is the top high school in the country. Yep, definitely. Yep. Very good. Cool. Well, you've been very gracious with your time today, Maggie. But before I let you go, um, any book recommendations or reading materials you'd recommend for listeners keeping up on the topics of community-oriented development? Yeah, so what what's funny is um, you recommended, I listened to the other podcast, you recommended Color of Law, uh, Representative Sherman said Color of Compromise. So my book that I think is important is called The Color of Money. Very good. Um, and it's about black banks and the racial wealth gap. Uh, and it really dives into um, how money circulates throughout our economy, but how that has 
been addressed through race. And I, I really think when we look at um, how projects are funded, it has a major impact. My other book recommendation, or other recommendation, it's not a book, it's a, a New York Times kind of uh, selection, is the 1619 Project, which really talks about the history of the U.S. Uh, and slavery and um, just the economy and capitalism. And I think it, it really plays into how we think about um, the America. So that's my two cents. Well, thank you again. We'll include links to both of those in the article summary. But again, Maggie, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Very good. Talk to you soon. Thank you.